Hello and welcome to the DanceCast, where I explore dance as an art form, traveling to non-traditional places and with non-traditional doers. I'm your host and my name is Silva Lakkanen. Welcome to DanceCast episode 14. In this series, I've been talking to people who are creating their work in a challenging environment or about challenging issues. And in this episode, I spoke to Sandra Paola Lopez Ramirez, who is a dance maker, improviser, and performance activist. Her work is characterized by the investigation of complex issues such as relationship, gender, race, identity, awareness, kinesthetic listening, and perception. And it has taken her through the US. Colombia, Brazil, Cyprus, France, Canada, and Mexico. Since moving to the United States from her native Colombia in 2004, she has developed her art practice to integrate her creative process and her cultural organizing efforts, driven by her commitment to social justice. Sandra Paola co-founded and now directs Into Impro, an organization empowering diverse populations through performance and improvisation in the U.S.-Mexico border. She has taught widely in both formal and informal education settings and is currently dance faculty at the University of Texas at El Paso and a candidate in the MFA program in Interdisciplinary Arts at Goddard College. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it has been an amazing journey to get to know Sandra Paola more and her work. It's really quite breathtaking. Well, welcome to the Dance Cat, Sandra Paola. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Me too. I, I, I was, I've been reading about your work from your website in the past couple of days and your bios and, and I've been treading down, trying, writing down questions, but I don't really even know where to start because there's so many amazing things you do. But I guess I'm going to start like where did it all start? <laughs> Just yeah. a small question. <laughs> yeah, very tiny. Um, I guess it depends what you're asking. Like, are well, you talking about me specifically in dance, or? Well, that's what I was thinking. Do I ask about into improv, where that start, or where your dance career start? But I guess I'm asking kind of both because okay. I I don't know. Like, how did you start, and then how did you start into improv? So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, I think I started like a lot of uh, young girls start in dance by doing ballet when I was like three or four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been dancing and moving my entire life. Um, and I think that the combination of being raised in a family that was um, surrounded by um, the energy of my late grandfather who started a nonprofit when he was younger. And like, I was just raised around that environment and that, um, nonprofit focuses on providing home to people that lose their houses to families that lose their houses. So it's like a temporary home for people to help them get back on their feet and then to help them do a, have a down payment to get a home of their own. So it's kind of like a transitional home for, um, for poor families in, in, in Bogota, the capital in Colombia, where I was born and raised. Um, and I think that that, uh, so the aspect of wanting to, um, 
in that moment of my life, I saw helping others in a disadvantaged situation. I think that that, that desire, that thought has always been there because of being kind of raced around the activities of that nonprofit. Um, and, uh, I think that as I grew older, especially, you know, a very significant part of how my career ended up developing was me moving to the U S I moved to the U S when I was, uh, 20, um, like a few weeks shy of my 20th birthday and moving to the U S really politicized me in a way that I would have never, um, been if had I stayed in Bogota in my little bubble, uh, and part of it was that because I was uh, born and raised in a family that was very privileged, I never had any um, necessity that wasn't met. And uh, in addition to that, I had the opportunity to travel abroad since a very young age and uh, to study abroad and had a lot of these great opportunities. Um, so I was definitely part of the, um, maybe you want to see it in this binary way of the oppressor and uh -huh. <laughs> And then being in, when I moved to the U.S., I moved to go to school in, um, in a school in Missouri. And, yeah, and that was a, a big shock for me because um, for the very first time, I started experiencing to be othered, right? So um, I really, I find it very interesting because you, you know, in Colombia, at least in my, in, when I was growing up at that time, like you never thought about like cultural identity. You were like, you're Colombian. That's it. <laughs> There's no... Um, especially in the circles that I grew around, like I didn't know anyone who was black. Maybe, you know, I could count people with one hand that were from a different ethnicity than, than my own or that were from a different religion than my own. So really it was not something that was available in my, in, in my environment to think about. And then I moved here and then all of a sudden um, I become this othered thing, right? So I'm not no longer considered white. So I always... <laughs> kid with my students that I realized I wasn't white when I was 20 and I moved here because my experience growing up is of course that of a, of a, of a white woman. Cause I, you know, my skin is lighter than, um, than most I, um, in Colombia, maybe not maybe than most, but you know, I can pass as white and, um, that, uh, really started to mess with me. I think, you know, I started confronting things that I just never had the opportunity, whether it was, um, because, uh, my parents trying to keep me in a certain environment of wanting to be sheltered, um, or just because that's the circles that I moved around, but whatever, for whatever reason, I was the first time that I was really confronted with like, oh, you know, this person is really angry at me because I am speaking Spanish or, um, this person doesn't particularly like me being here or, oh, I'm, I'm recognizing that this question has some racial undertones and, and that led me to start realizing also all kinds of, um, misogyny present in my relationships and kind of start reflecting on, oh, wow, like the culture I'm from is extremely misogynistic and, um, you know, racist. And you know, so it, it got me to start really um, grappling with all these issues. Um, and I think that for me it was very natural as I continued my own uh, development as a dance artist to to find connections, to try to figure out um, 
both within my own development, like trying to figure out what does it mean to be someone from Latin America? What does it mean to be a Latina? What does it mean to be a woman in that context? And Mm -hmm. um, I think that that led me to start developing um, ways in my dance practice that I could deal with that and could could figure things out through the use of my body, which is the way that I knew how to. Um, and I think that that led me to um, start really wanting to focus my development um, in using dance as a way to address social issues, as a way to help people develop or help myself develop and grow. Um, so I think that all that um, like got me to the point that for like my BFA final review when I was getting ready to my graduate to graduate with my bachelor's, I did this 30 minute piece, um, about, uh, um, landslide that happened in Colombia in the eighties when I was two years old that wiped out a town. And, you know, that was a very big, um, like it's a very big scar, I think in the, in the country's history and the impact that it has had in my family, that was a, my dad's hometown. Mm. So, um, and I've been there in what's left of the town uh, with my dad before. Uh, it, has been, it had been one of the spaces, one of the few spaces where I had seen my dad cry, which mm. was something like really big impact. And just kind of learning more about it, talking to people that lived through it, um, seeing kind of how after like big disasters like that, and see, we see that today, there's like this big influx of international aid at the beginning and then some of the people are forgotten and then they are left, you know, homeless and this kind of like perpetuation of the people that get aid versus the people that don't get aid. And, um, and I saw how big of an impact that had in the audience. And, um, I started thinking, wow, like, like there's something here that I want to pursue that just, doing what I call pretty dancing just doesn't do it for me. Um, so I think that that was kind of the beginning of a quest. Um, and I feel like I've been talking for a while. So no, <laughs> I, you know what? I don't, I don't even care. Cause I'm very, very, I mean, I'm encapsulated in it. I love, I love it. Like, I love how you said, like all my, all my necessities were met. I mean, that is, I love the way you describe things. So, I don't mind listening to you at all. I mean, I'm sure nobody else does either. And it's funny because I'm thinking, you know, I'm I grew up in Finland where everybody's upper middle class. Like we don't, at least back then, we didn't have class differences. Um, education is the same for all. Healthcare is same for all. And then the first time I moved abroad, I went to South Africa, and just because my skin color, I raised into this really high class. And I felt so ashamed, even though I wasn't part of the culture or the history, just the way I was treated because of my skin color, which was something I had never experienced, was I wanted to like dye my skin black, like really bad. And I had the similar thing of like, this is, this is so wrong. Like I can't, like I can't do this. Why, why am I treated like this? And here in America, I, as long as I keep my mouth shut, I'm fine. Nobody knows that I'm not from here. And I'm also in this like white class here. So I, I 
struggled and like found similar challenges in my like identity which was so strong as a Finnish woman you know like that that was who I am before I left Finland and then it it was never about like my appearance or my class because those didn't exist where I was coming from or even gender because in Finnish we don't have gender pronouns so I grew up in a I feel like very equal like a man and female like and it's almost in Finland so that the the woman is the one who does the work. She's the she's the strong one who plows the farms and milks the cows and she's the one who makes things happen. So it, it that gender thing has been. I remember when my first child was born in here and I suddenly was just a wife and a mother and we were signing our house papers and they didn't look at me. They never talked to me, the brokers. I was just the mother in the room. And it was just, I was so livid after that. But so, yeah, um, I, I need to think about it more in the, in, the art, in the art context in the future. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, uh, that impact that it has for you to, I mean, you, get, you just get the opportunity to notice things that you just don't in your own culture. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, it was very interesting to see how impacted, especially as a dancer, like you're, you say you're a dancer and that already carries all these different connotations, yes, right? Because exactly. You're a woman and you're a dancer. And then when you add the fact that you are Latina or you're from a Latin culture, then there's all these other things that pop up with that description. And I think that that really made me kind of, think about how do I want it to represent myself as a woman and I've never been a traditional quote-unquote female though I don't like referring to it that way but you know that's something that my family and my mom specifically has always reminded me of that I'm not I just a uh, normal woman <laughs> um, you know the way I used to wear my hair the way I dress um, and these are having things that have been that have caused a lot of pushback from uh, my family and my own culture um, because there is that particular, you know, well, you're a Latina, you're supposed to do things in a certain way and move in a certain way. And the movement and surrounding the idea of being Latina is so predetermined. And uh, anyway, so I've grappled a lot with that. And I think that um, kind of going back to threading that into what into improv mm-hmm came um once I um I had this kind of very like a turning point for me in terms of my own practice as a dancer and as a, a movement movement artist which was encountering improvisation like it's a deep um movement research tool or or method um and this happened to me at, a, at a, an intensive that I took with the lower left collective and and this was shortly after I graduated from my undergrad. And this was like completely mind blowing to me. Like I had taken improvisation classes before, but this was for me a completely different way. I was introduced to a completely different way of seeing improvisation. And I realized that improvisation had, like it required a, an attention and a, a, an awareness to my body and to what was happening with my body in that particular time that incorporated 
you know, the entirety of my experience. So not just how I was moving, but how I was feeling the temperature of the room, if there were other bodies in the room and, and that had like tremendous personal um, and ethical implications for me in terms of how I chose to relate to others when I was in that state of mind versus when I wasn't. Yeah. And at this time I was, um, I had already been meditating and studying Buddhism and Taoist philosophies for three or four years. Cause I started doing that in college. And so that felt very congruent and, and like I, 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 I have never looked back since. So pretty much since then my whole practice, um, maybe not my entire practice, but the vast majority of my practice has been focused in improvisation and developing and pursuing that, um, you know, what I saw or what I see as this incredible potential of human development and human growth within improvisation and the use of your body in, in this practice. Um, so that's why, you know, for the past eight years, that's been like my main focus of my work. And I think that when I got to the point of like, wow, this like, literally changed my life and I want to do that for others and into improv has several different projects there's the mm -hmm. knee jerk spark and the Cat Catalea project is that mm -hmm. how you say it? the Catalea project yeah and uh how did I mean knee jerk is this performance laboratory ensemble mm -hmm. so let's talk about knee jerk first great um so one of the things, you know, so I started into improv um, with my partner. He's an improvising musician. And um, one of the reasons that we started this work is when we started improvising together across disciplines uh, in 2011. And we, in this process, said, okay, there's something very special about this dialogue that happens in improvised performance across disciplines. You know, something that neither of us quite could tap into as often when improvising within our own disciplines. Mm. So um, so that's when we decided, okay, we need to figure out a way to teach this to others or to work with this, like, you know, there's something here and that's when we create into improv and we start figuring out what it is. And, and um, when we moved to Texas um, in 2014, when we started figuring out how we, how into improv was gonna look here, because it had a very particular, um, it looked in a very particular way when we lived in Illinois. And then when we moved here, we, we started figuring out what it was. And one of the things that we realized is that we needed to continue to have a space to play with this ideas of, um, of doing and performing improvised um, pieces across disciplines and to try new things and to figure out both how to teach it and how to do it in different ways. So the idea of creating like a community group that would bring together professional artists and amateur artists and people in the community just to come together to improvise together and to play and to try new things um, was kind of necessary. Mm -hmm. And so, so Knee Jerk was born in that way and it has and continues to be kind of this place where we just continue pushing our um, or methodology of using this form in community spaces and with people that are not necessarily professionals, quote unquote, in the arts, um, as a way to see and and grow how and how this the impact of this practice 
um, happens, you know, how it mm-hmm. develops. And so we try new things and, and, you know, in whatever we continue to train on our own, um, both my partner, um, Chris and I, uh, come back and it's like, okay, let's try this thing and let's see how that, what that would mean to do it with musicians or let's try these things with the musicians and let's see what it would mean to do it for dancers. And so, um, and then, you know, we've added and had moments where we've had theater artists there. So using narrative and using language. Oh, and okay. So, and, um, you, and then you also need your cast on like a site specific performances, right? You go into public places and perform. Yes. So, um, the way that we, that we run the ensemble is we basically in, I don't know, like, I don't like to call it seasons, but, you know, like <laughs> sections. Um, so we basically take um, an eight to 10 week session um, where we have like half of it where it's just pure exploration. So we get in a dance studio and we just try games and things and we just try and try and try. And then the second part, we work towards a performance. So we create scores and uh, we often dialogue with spaces and we try to, um, kind of alternate between doing things in like galleries or in places where we can have a dialogue with visual art um, and um, public spaces like parks or street performances. Um, so that's kind of, kind of how we run it. So we have the sessions and I, there's been, you know, there's naturally some turnover in the group. So we have developed like um, some core members. So there's two or three people that have been with us for a while and they continue coming back. And then there's other people that kind of come and go. And I think that continues to challenge us to, uh, to figure out how to do this with people that have never done it. And, and that helps us discover new things about, um, the work. Um, and, but yeah, that's and, how it. And knee jerk was also integrated. You had somebody in a wheelchair dancing with you, still right? Do. Yeah. Yeah. I still do. So oh, still okay. Yeah. So he was, he joined last session and the current session he's still with us. That's awesome. Yes, that, yes that's been really, really beautiful because it's getting us to, um, of course, think about movement and what movement means in different ways. Uh, and to see also how he relates to his body and his movement and how that has changed. And um, it's it's been, yeah, it's been great, great to have him. And he's a very open and talented he's a musician a clarinetist and been really really great to have him so nice so knee-jerk keeps on going going and growing yes <laughs> and then there's a spark which is your educational program at into improv yes and spark you know basically what we want is to you know the little tagline for the program is to ignite creativity yeah. through performance and improvisation and it's, it's very clever I like it a lot <laughs> <laughs> um we uh you know we think that because we're both educators you know both Chris and I teach uh at the college level and I also do some programs at school level um that educational spaces are very stagnant very often and that using improvisation um and performance of, as ways to activate spaces is uh, really important. And, um, you know, this is not a new idea. This is something that is a movement that has been <laughs> growing. Um, and so I think what falls under Spark is both 
um, programs or workshops that we teach where we're specifically teaching about dance improvisation or music improvisation, but it also incorporates um, workshops or programs where we're using improvisation or uh, performance to work not necessarily in an art-related environment. So, okay. yeah. so for example, one of the things that, I, that I'm doing through that program is um, I'm advising and working with a in fine arts initiative um, with the El Paso Independent School District where they're trying to do uh, or help teachers integrate fine arts daily in their practices at schools. So um, as their performance arts specialist, and I'm also part of their advisory board, um, I use the methodology that we continue to develop through into improv to get teachers to think about teaching in a different way. So I'm not necessarily telling them, oh, you're going to teach them this dance or you're going to take this concept and do it. But what I'm more interested in is um, how the idea of playing or the idea of um, responding to their students, you know, to things, for example, that are vital in improvisation could get them to develop different kinds of relationships with their students that will help their students become better learners. Yeah, so we have here in Austin, um, since I've been involved since 2014 with a program called Creative Learning Initiative, where we are doing a teacher trainings for five different arts. I think there's drama, visual arts, movement, theater, uh, and writing, music, music. And so we have, um, or people from Forklift Danceworks has created uh, strategies that we then tie into a different academic curriculum. And it's been a really cool project. And those teachers are, and I work with the special education teachers especially, and it's been really neat to see how they can and are excited to actually um, learn other ways to teach the same themes and subjects and I'm that is I love that so maybe we need to talk more about it we should yeah seems very analogous yeah yeah so yes I'm and I'm so happy to hear that it's happening everywhere because I often think education especially here um everything else has moved on so rapidly and evolved and yet the education system looks the same than in you know 1920 yeah so we really need some sort of change in there too mm-hmm. that's really neat that's cool so and then there's the Catalea project that mm-hmm. is I can't not wait to hear more about it yeah that's a very special project for me um because it has grown out of the explorations that I was telling you about mm-hmm. my my femininity and my role as a woman and and my relationship to being Latina. Um, And so the Catleja project, I mean, first I think contextualizing what Catleja is, Catleja is just the Latin word of a flower, an orchid. Okay. Okay. um, Happens to be, um, there's one specific Catleja that is the national flower of Colombia. And it's Mm. been my favorite flower my entire life. Um, And this project grew out of these explorations that I was having, you know, I created, um, different dance pieces that just led me to question through my body 
um, these issues about Latinidad and what does it mean to be Latina, what does it mean to be a woman, how do I represent myself as a woman, um, and how my choices impact others in the way that they see me as a Latina woman. Hmm. Um, and so this program, uh, its focus is um, to work with both women, to empower women, and also to promote gender uh, as a fluid spectrum. Um, and that specifically right now it looks um, uh, together, like something that to me has to be part of female empowerment is to educate and work with people, people in seeing different forms of both femininity and masculinity and how we represent um, what it means to be those genders or not fit in those genders. Um, and our biggest program with that, so that program also has different um, projects like performances or workshops, but we also have an ongoing program with the Catalla Project, and it's a partnership with a women's shelter in Ciudad Juarez, and the shelter is called Simbiolencia, and it's a, they work with women and their families or children that are escaping situations of extreme domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And we work with them on a weekly basis. Um, we go and uh, have, so that basically the idea is to uh, offer workshops where through performance and improvisation and the use of the body, we are inviting women to develop new kinds of relationships to their own bodies and new kinds of relationships to their kids and to each other in the, to create community within the shelter. And it's been a just incredibly moving experience um, to see these women, I mean, how the, the impact of this program has helped these women really flourish in a different way than without it. Yeah, and, and this is something that the staff is so clear on, that there is something about the exploration of um, female representation and, and gender and all this through the body that is helping make connections and making um, space, making a space where they can question things that they just weren't getting to in their um, psychology or social work or all this, you know, follow-ups and programs that they have within the shelter. So, um, you know, seeing from, from women, telling us that, that that's the only space where they can feel they can just be mm. and where they can forget about their a particular problem or where they feel they can explore the different things or new things. It has brought up for them issues of sexuality. You know, a lot of these women come into the shelter never ha having experienced an orgasm, for example, never knowing that sex could be a pleasurable um, and allowing themselves to feel sensual or to feel sexy or to uh, recognize another woman as looking sexy. Like, like there's all these things wrapped up in, um, I think, in the machismo culture, in Latin, in Latin cultures, um, that is really, I feel, so ingrained. And to see that these things are coming up through them just moving and recognizing that they can move their bodies um, it's been just incredible. And then on top of all that cultural weight, there is also the abuse part of it. That right. Yes. It's just, 
Yeah. And Can't we, even imagine. Right. And we see, I mean, the, the cases are so extreme. I mean, so, so extreme that I, I, I feel like it's such a privilege for, for us to be able to go in and, and work and work with them. Like I, I, I learn so much when I'm there with them and I, I don't, um, it, it's amazing to see like how the, the gap that there is between my experience in this world and their experience in the world. And it's just incredible. It's incredibly moving for me. And, um, it has kind of continued to strengthen my resolve of the importance of this work and the, the value that it has. And I think that I have a special, um, I don't know, like a special part of like my heart and my soul that is very dedicated to women. Mm-hmm. Something part. I mean, I'm a woman and my experience of being a woman, but I mean, I, there is something for me um, that kind of gets connected, activated. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's very, very visceral and very, intuitive and abstract that there is something that happens when I'm working with women that is very unique to that experience. Um, not that I don't enjoy working with other populations, <laughs> but it's important that there's something about seeing a woman become more powerful. And that is just so rewarding for me in this work. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that with my experience of working with uh, incarcerated women. That is a similar uh, feeling for sure. Yeah. Wow, that that project. There was videos and and pictures on your website too. So I will link all that on this as well so people can go and see those. And then you just started a partnership with the Texas Department of Health? Yes. Yeah, the Texas Health and Services Commission. Yes, they... um, so this is one of our spark programs. Yeah. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they contacted me cause I, um, created in the work that I do at the university, you know, I teach at UTEP at the university of Texas at El Paso. And I started with, um, with them, a children dance program that is focused on creative dance. And I've been working with that program for about a year and a half, um, almost two years now. And so the Delta, the Texas Health and Services Commission contacted me to see if um, I would be willing to open um, or do a class um, for visually impaired students. So I started working with them and we decided to start this outside of the UTEP program and do it through into improv. And I'm about done with the first session of the program, but um, we I decided to create an inclusive class um, because I believe that it's important to have children or to create opportunities for children to, to relate to each other, even though there's differences in what is needed. And, um, I have, I, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing and I, (laughs) I think I do. Um, and I've been trying different things and, you know, you have been an incredible resource for me in this journey. Um, but it's been very humbling to be in like weekly in these spaces, just creating opportunities for these kids to 
yeah, to teach me, you know, what, (laughs) (laughs) and how I can serve those needs and how I can help them develop and grow. And, you know, similarly to my experience at the shelter, I just, I feel like such a student, like, I, I feel like I'm the one that's going there to learn from them. Um, and it's been incredibly moving to also see the relationships, um, that have been forming between the kids that don't have any disabilities and the children with the dis- with disabilities because they, um, I mean, in a sense, they take responsibility for being there and they have, like, they've developed in how relate they relate to them too. And I think that that's a very natural thing. Yeah. So going yeah, from... Your age gap were pretty big on that program too. Yes, it's a little crazy. So my youngest one is six years old and my oldest one is 20. Yeah. Oh, it's so a, you're a brave woman, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either that or naive. <laughs> but yeah, so that's been a really interesting uh, program, and I'm hoping that it continues to grow. Um, and yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. There's there's a couple of ideas that I have right now and how to continue to grow it, but. Um, that I think is one of the things that improvisation has also opened up for me, but is this idea of redefining what dance is and who can participate in it. And just, I think improvisation because of the practice of, and what it is, is inherently an inclusive form of dance. And, um, I think that it's so important both in quote unquote dance spaces and non-dance spaces to to challenge the the traditional um way that we've been trained to think about dance. And I I'm very happy to start working with 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 kids with mixed abilities. Yeah, that is I really that is amazing project that you do. That is very challenging. And I haven't even been there. I just know the stats of your class. So, yeah, that is amazing. But I, you know, I went to, I did a BFA, my BFA in Finland, in a school that was very focused on creative movement and, and conduct improvisation and dance improvisation. So I grew up very much in that. Actually, we had to each week write an essay. What What is technique? Because there was a lot of like a pushback from the students. It's like, no, we will never be good dancers. We don't do this and this technique we are not starting Graham we are not starting Cunningham technique um and so each week we had to you know give in our fill our write-up essay what is technique and I think it was really good for me because it definitely like I realized in the middle of my BFA that I'm never going to be a, a, a traditional dancer it didn't interest me and it scared me because it was the only thing I had also ever done in my life. <laughs> so that was like really good school for me because it made me who I am today. And like even our ballet classes were taught from a very somatic point of view. <clears throat> so then um, it, we went to, we had a chance to go to a rehabilitation center for one week and we offered dance instead of PT there and that was the point where it then totally like was like yes this this is the kind of experience I want to be in and involved for the rest of my career so I'm very grateful for that and then the accessibility part of 
dance improvisation, we about two years ago invited Nina Martin to come and work with Body Shift. And she was really nervous about it because she had never done the work. And we were like, oh, don't worry, uh, you know, you're rewiring stages and ensemble thinking, it will be all very accessible. And you know, it kind of changed her world. She came back um, this spring and did a pilot study, research study with the students or with our body shift participants because her rewire staging stages has been really influential for people with cerebral palsy and it calms their nervous system their fine motor skills are getting better like it's just been like amazing to watch the effect that her work has on people with cerebral palsy and and she she we were we were talking on the phone and she's like you changed my life like you damn you <laughs> so yeah it's very dance improvisation is very accessible not only for people with disabilities but everybody really truly it is yeah and I, I think you know like that that intensive that I t was telling you that really shifted the way that I thought about dance was with the lower left collective which okay. helped fun. yeah um, you know so they have been the ones that developed um ensemble thinking and one of the I mean, my two main influences are ensemble thinking and action theater. Mm. And um, both of them, you know, I think ensemble thinking, like it's a democratic um, practice of this performance form. And um, action theater is just has totally um, blown me away in terms of redefining, rethinking and continuously recreating what it means to dance and <laughs> what it means to improvise and uh, yeah, and being the moment in in what's happening and emerging, um, and it it just has huge ethical implications. And I think it's I I cannot you know like like a snowball. Like I can't I cannot just pretend <laughs> I cannot just not do this. You know, like I can't pretend like this doesn't have a huge potential for not just transformation um, of people that do it, but also just just shifting paradigms about dance and about the way the world works and about how we relate to others. And this this access for me, in my experience, um, is not only about generating access for other kinds of bodies or other kinds of people, but also because of the area of where I'm at and living at the border, it's also about who gets literal just access to this kind of work, you know, like you go, well, here in El Paso is very absent too, but even more so in Ciudad Juarez. And, you know, what part of what I've been doing is trying to set um, training sessions or working with people in Juarez that cannot cross mm. um, <clears throat> because they've never seen improvisation or, or looked at improvisation in, in this way. Um, so also access from the from the point of like cultural justice and how culture plays such an important role in privilege. And that for me in terms of both performance and practice um, is extremely important in this yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. You, you done some amazing performances last year. Was it last year you had the, or was it in the, in the spring there was, this photo, you had a photo exhibit, there were photographs and you dancing in the exhibition of the photographs. So talk a little bit about that project as well. I know I'm like, I, I want to hear more. 
<laughs> that project um, was actually last year, uh, almost to the day. It was late May of last year. Um, and it was called Red Moon, White Moon, Blue Moon. And it was a collaboration with a photographer, a poet, and myself. Three women of color from different um, from different experiences and different cultures. Um, we came uh, together really to explore like images and the thoughts of the divine feminine, or how the imagery of the divine feminine has changed through time, how it relates to um, our relationships with women in our families, and also how it has shaped our relationship to our bodies and specifically to menstruation. So, oh, okay. so the exhibit, the photographs were um, different images of women in relationship to fertility and menstruation and just cycles. The poem was um, just this beautiful, touching experience that uh, that Naima, the the poet, had had with her own infer issues of infertility and. Um, like non-regular menstruation and menstrual periods and what that has meant for her. And, um, and then my own experience of, um, with specifically with the medical field, but like I, I was never explained. It was never explained to me that birth control will prevent me from ovulating because I was given birth control to regulate um, my periods when I was like 15 or 16 and I was just on it nonstop for 17 years. And that research made me want, like made me stop taking birth control and start tracking my cycle and get to know my cycle. And so it became just this, it became really a piece about the, again, like the oppression that our society imposes on women due to this natural cycle, you know, and we're not supposed to talk about it and we're not supposed to show it and we're not supposed to um, feel like this is a gift. And, and, and yeah, and, and oddly, you know, ironically, it got um, uh, banned from its original <laughs> site and we had to move it like less than 24 hours before the exhibit opened. Oh, I remember that. Yes. So it, oh, you there, know, there you go. Yeah. So it's just, again, highlighting the fact that, oh, so, you know, we continue to be told that because we're women, we have to still feel shame about our body and what our body naturally does. There is, you know, something that is very, was very telling about that experience. Um, so, yeah. And so the, the, my performance of it, you know, it was an installation. So it was a, a kind of a structured improvisation around themes of, you know, I had created this movement themes or this more than movement themes for me was just like, like emotional responses to improvising in the different phases of my own menstrual cycle mm. and generating movement out of that. And then using that as I moved through the whole, you know, the two hour installation. Wow. And just a disclaimer, because I work with my body and my body is my tool. I love my periods. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a sign of a healthy body and I love them. Absolutely. I mean, and that is why what allows us to, to, for the, uh, for humanity to continue. Like yeah, if exactly. women did periods, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have people. <laughs> yeah. So what? Just learn 
recognize all of that has been really powerful. Yeah, yeah. So what is in the future for you and Into Improv? How does the future look? Ah, uh, busy. <laughs> well, can it get any more busy? <laughs> so right now we're starting a project in um, collaboration with another organization through the Catleya project. So um, I, ta I talked to you briefly about it, I think last time we talked, mm -hmm. but it's this um, collective um, dance piece that we're creating called Transfronteriza that we'll talk about, or not talk about, but you know, that we'll show and, and share um, experiences and thoughts and challenges and dreams and aspirations of women in the border. And we are creating it as a um, collective, like it's a space of radical collective creativity. So, you know, as an artist, I'm going into this not to necessarily think about what I want to put on stage, but to go in as a cultural organizer and invite people to create this with me. Mm -hmm. um, so we have... Um, kind of like a timeline to create a solo performance that will be performed in Albuquerque in the dance festival there. And then to continue the process to create a collective piece where the women that contribute to the formation of the piece can actually participate in performing it. And so that, you know, I guess as part of like a, a next um, program, you know, we have all these ongoing things. So, you know, Niger continues to go on, like a later project continues to do this thing with the shelter and, you know, we continue to have this um, spark workshops, but this is um, something that is kind of like in the immediate future, we're starting to, um, to work on. That's great. Is that part of the, you know, I just remember, gosh, there's so many things you do. There's that work with the borders and walls. Is this, yeah. This is it. This is part of, uh, so the, this other organization is called Boundless Across Borders, and it's a coalition that formed specifically to organize the local women's march. Okay. And so I was part of um, the leading team that organized that march and that organized that coalition. And part of what we did was um, the day before the march, the day of the inauguration, create this performance action where over 50 women from both sides of the border, we braided our hair together on the bridge and stood in silence as the president was inaugurated. So that was an amazing experience. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you braided your hairs across the border? Yeah. And then um, for those of us that don't have that much hair, uh -huh. um, we braided scarves, so we put scarves okay. on our head and braided the scarves with the hair, hair of the other. So the performance of braiding hair, so uh, me and the other um, co-producer of the event started at both ends. So I started on the Juarez side, she started on the El Paso side, and we started braiding women. And then we met in the center and someone braided our hair together. And then we just stood in silence for two hours while the presidential inauguration was taking place. Wow. So, yeah, so the, it had a huge impact both, of course, on us um, and on the women that we organized to be there and really on the world. Like we had, it was crazy the amount of attention that it got around the world. And, uh, you know, uh, the Al Jazeera videos, they made a little video on this and 
the New York Times compiled a, a video online um, through their Facebook page of different protests around the world, and Braiding Borders was the last thing in their clip, and like all these things that we just we didn't expect, but it was amazing. <laughs> amazing to see how this like very um, simple but honest and direct, you know, peaceful performance action. Um, can say so much. And the fact that we were all women and the fact that, you know, the, the image of the braid is something that is associated with being female. And so um, in a way, it's kind of a buildup of, from that experience of wanting to continue to organize women and organize with women here. Um, so with that organization, we've been collaborating with Into Improv and generating play and performance-based workshops. One of them was called Playing with Borders and Walls. So we've been trying to generate this series. The first one was Playing with Fear and Anger. The second one was Playing with Borders and Walls. The third one was Playing with Gender. So kind of challenging the assumption that um, that with this big issues um, that we that, that we, we have to, that there's just this one way to be with this issue, which is this either or um, very, conflicting and dualistic view, but, you know, inviting people to come and be playful with those topics and to create with us, um, silly performances and <laughs> to have a, uh, find a new way to create community around those issues. So oh, that is so amazing. Oh my gosh. Can I come and follow you for a week? <laughs> yes. You <should. laughs> I remember when I saw you and Chris for the first time, you were performing at the Texas Dance Improvisation Festival and you started the performance, you asked everybody to set their phone's timer for 10 minutes and then the whole audience timers went off almost simultaneously. I thought it was very clever and fun. <laughs> yes. That was our way of like, we have to end in a particular time and we don't know how to. So let's just ask the audience for help. <laughs> that was really, really clever way. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to get to know your work more and talk to you again. I, I'm so honored to know you. Yours, uh, your, your work is inspiring. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> we need to, we need to uh, physically get together. I'm not joking about coming to follow you for a week. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. We have <laughs> and you're welcome to come anytime. And you teach full time at the UTAP? Well, I teach full time, but I'm not a full time teacher. <laughs> hey. I don't pay much, but I work a lot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm Sounds a, familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, the reality of a lot of us. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I teach three to four courses every semester. Um, and then work with students in a lot of different ways um, in addition to that. But, but I'm not full-time. And I also love that you are in the academia and in the dance programs because I think showing the future dance artists all the possibilities and how wide our field really can be is very important right now. And that is something that I've been... I mean, that's what keeps me in academia, to tell you the truth, is, is to have students come up and tell me, wow, how come I've never been taught this? Like, how come, you know, it took me to my last year in 
uh, a dance program to know that this is possible or to know that this is an option or to know that this is happening in other parts of the world. So, and I've had that, you know, I pioneered a course in performance activism mm. that's actually getting its own little number in next <laughs> year. So I'm quite excited about that. Um, but we talk about the use of performance and other art forms for social change um, and specifically this modality called performance activism. Um, and yeah, I'm just amazed at how students tell me, thank you. You know, if it wasn't for you, I would continue, you know, going through my life thinking that, you know, Shakespeare was what I needed to do or thinking that if I didn't do ballet, I couldn't be a dancer or, you know, so. Yeah, well, that that's the thing. That's the thing that blew me away, realizing when I, when I was studying and like seeing just this very narrow thing that I couldn't see myself fit in. And like there was my my entire life dream crashed, so I was very very lucky that I had a professor like you who showed me the other side. So, thank you so much. Thank you. It's always lovely to talk to you.